Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. We're in Acts chapter 13. We have been in Acts all year. And as the calendar would work out, uh, how many know how many chapters there are in the book of Acts? 28 chapters in the book of Acts. And as the calendar would work out, we're going to go through exactly 14 chapters this year. And then come January, we'll begin in Acts 15, and we'll take the rest of Acts next year. I didn't plan that out, but that's just how it worked out. As we've started the book of Acts, that we've talked about how there's three phases in this story, in this narrative. The first phase in those first few chapters is about the church starting. The Holy Spirit is, uh, is what they're waiting for. The disciples have learned about it from their time with Jesus when Jesus was alive. John 15, if you want to read about it later this week, Jesus begins to tell them there's going to become a day where I'm no longer with you and there's going to be an advocate, there's going to be a counselor, there's going to become another person that comes alongside of me, alongside of you in my absence. Now at that time, they didn't really understand that it wasn't going to be a physical person necessarily, but Jesus was laying the foundation of what the Holy Spirit would look like in their lives. We fast forward to the end of the Gospels, and Jesus has been uh, crucified, he's been buried, and he's resurrected, and the disciples get to see him for a few moments after his resurrection, and that's when they get excited and they say, Lord, is this, is this the time the kingdom comes? Is this the time where we get to rule and reign with you? And Jesus says to wait. How many of you like it when someone tells you to wait? <laughs> right? So the, the followers have been following him for several years. It seems like the resurrection was the moment where they get to unleash the kingdom of God here on earth, and yet Jesus says to wait. He says to wait, and at a certain time, the Holy Spirit will come. We see that come in Acts chapter 2, and this is the beginning of the church. The church starts. Uh, Peter preaches a message. Thousands of people are saved, and we chronicle that for about f- uh, five or six chapters where the church was starting, its infancy, all of the awesome things that happened when the church started. And then for a few chapters, the second favor movement of the church was the church scattering. With all the growth that happened with the church, now there was a tension on them. And now there was persecution in several different forms. There was difficulty within the church, but there was also persecution from without. And with that persecution, what ended up happening is the followers of Jesus Christ, the church, began to scatter from Jerusalem to the areas around it. We see the Church of Galilee spring up. We see the uh, Ethiopian eunuch hears about Jesus. We see the uh, uh, Samaritans are now receiving the gospel. All of these different places. Last week we looked at the church at Antioch. All of these places that were around Jerusalem were now getting the gospel. It really follows the timeline that Jesus set forth in Acts chapter 1 where we will begin today. It says this, you will receive, everyone say that next word. All right, let's say it like we mean it. You will receive when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's the church starting Then you'll be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria. This is the church scattering. 
It's outside of the realm of Jerusalem, but now it's scattering. And then it says, and to the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth, which signifies the church sending. You see the movement here? You see the progression? The church starts, it begins to scatter just a little bit, and now the church sends. It moves into the ends of the earth. We'll pick up the narrative here in... um, Let's see, chapter 13 and verse 1. It says this, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So whenever there's this new movement in the book of Acts, you'll notice that one of the, thing that, one of the things that Luke does as the author is he kind of introduces this new cast of characters. So this is what he's doing in Acts chapter 1. Barnabas, Saul, and John Mark were all at the church in Antioch. They've uh, returned, having received a gift of support to the church of Jerusalem. And so now we're introduced to three more characters, Simon, Lucius, and Manian. Now, if you read through the book of Acts, what you'll notice is this. There's a discerning eye... Uh, when you read through it, you'll see that Luke's paid special attention to any time barriers are being broken down. Anytime barriers are broken down, Luke highlights that. It's not one of the overt themes of Luke, but you'll notice that he speaks about women differently than any of the other gospels speak of. He speaks of women in high regard, in equal status. He also speaks of foreigners are Gentiles or outsiders in the same breath as he would with Jewish people. So right here we see these people that are following Jesus Christ and the church is destroying racial, uh, ethnical, ethnical? That's not the word. Ethnic cultural barriers. It's destroying all of these. So Simon was a black African among the congregation in Antioch, possibly the same Simon who carried Jesus's cross. Manian here mentioned here grew up with Herod the Tetrarch. This is the same Herod who beheaded John the Baptist and presided over Jesus's trials. So it's interesting that Manian and Herod grew up together, but they went totally different ways, right? We're being introduced to this cast of characters. Uh, Let's read on verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have commanded them. So this this was part of what happened in the church in uh, Antioch. They worshiped together. They prayed together. They fasted. This is the discipline where you withhold food in order to heighten your awareness of God's presence in your life. In doing these things, they did the service of the priests. It's very interesting to me that the word uh, translated worship here is the word usually employed in the Pentateuch for the service of priests and Levites in the temple. So the act of worshiping the Lord was not simply singing together. It was not simply gathering together. It painted the picture of the high service of both the priests and Levites. When you put yourself in a position where you are worshiping, where you're focusing your attention, you will get an assignment from God. If you're following in your notes, getting an assignment from the Holy Spirit is part of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Getting an assignment. Um, It's like being in class. 
so think back to when you were in class, and some of you are going to have to think long, longer back than others. But let's say that you're in high school. You're thinking about a class. You're thinking about a teacher, uh, and you get an assignment. The only difference between the person who walks out knowing they have an assignment and the person who walks out without having a clue they have an assignment, what's the difference between those two people? What is it? One of them was paying attention, right? If you were in class and you weren't paying attention and your mind was drifting and you were just going through the motions and you walked out and didn't know that you had an assignment due, are you responsible for the assignment? Help me out. The only difference between the person who gets the assignment and the person who doesn't know there's an assignment is one's paying attention. Getting an assignment from the Holy Spirit is part of being a follower of Jesus Christ. And I would submit to you that if you haven't got an assignment from the Lord, you're not paying attention. You're just not paying attention. Following Jesus is an active walk. It's amazing that in the New Testament, the metaphor that the writers use to describe our relationship with Jesus is a walk. First of all, I'm glad it's not a sprint. Because <laughs> I get tired on sprints. I'm glad it's not a, uh, a run. In your run with God... Well, that's totally different, isn't it? But in your walk, it's an active walk. That, so the only difference between someone who knows they got an assignment and someone who doesn't know they get an assignment is one of them is paying attention and the other one is not. So the question here as we look through and we say, well, that's really neat that Paul and Barnum's got an assignment. Um, are you listening? Are you developing the spiritual discipline of hearing from God? Are you looking at Scripture with an open heart to see uh, the writer of Hebrews says the Word of God is quick, alive, sharper than any two-edged sword? Yeah, um, so when you read it, it's quick, it's alive, it, it means it talks to you, it means it applies to you, it means it can, it can jump out and slap you in the face sometimes, it can come up and give you a hug sometimes. It can come up and shine a light sometimes. It'll do something in your life because it's quick and it's alive. But here's the thing, you got to read it, right? You got to read it. Um, are you developing the spiritual discipline of hearing from God? So they, they, pr they prayed, they fasted about the need of the word for Jesus going to people they prayed for these people groups. Uh, Peter had explained to them his, uh, his uh, conversation and his interaction with Cornelius. He comes back in Acts chapter 11, defends the fact that the gospel is for everyone. They begin thinking and praying about that. Peter's arrested. He's now released from prison. And now they're like, what do we do now, Lord? What do we do now? Where does the gospel go now? If you ask that question, God will answer you. If you start to pray, Lord... Who can I be a blessing to today? Who needs to hear the hope of the gospel today? Who can I be kind to? Who can I be gracious to? Who can I be compassionate to? Uh, the people in my life today, Lord, lead me to an assignment 
that you have for me. If you begin praying that way, God will answer those prayers. It's part of being a follower of Jesus Christ. So they started praying, and God directed them very specifically. The idea of this type of attention, this type of worship, is focusing. For instance, if I asked you today, how many, um, how many times did you shake hands with someone this morning? Now, some of you would know that because we would just count out everyone because you shake everyone's hand. Some of you would be easy because you're just, you don't shake someone's hand. But if next Sunday I said, I'm going to give 20 bucks out to every hand you shake, you know what I can guarantee? You would keep track of how many hands you shake. And I'd be broke. (laughs) The only difference between the two Sundays is the focus. Now we've directed our focus to an area, right? So what would happen in our lives if we simply directed our focus? If we simply directed our focus, because uh, for most of us, this week is going to be pretty similar to last week. We're going to go to work. For those of you who are retired, you're going to go to the recliner. Um, (laughs) Oh, I can't wait. Um, You're going to go and do pretty much the same thing you did last week. You're probably going to see the same type of people. You're going to see the same type of interactions in your life. So what would happen if you just change your focus in those interactions? And all of a sudden, the appointment you have uh, to meet someone all of a sudden changes because you're putting attention, you're putting focus on that, you're now listening to the Holy Spirit, you're asking God, you're searching Scripture, you're praying for direction, and now when you're in the moment and you say, man, how's it going? And that person hesitates just a minute before they say, I'm doing okay. Now the Holy Spirit can talk to you because you're listening, and he can say, just let them talk right now. Let them share what's going on. There's something here, and they just need you to be present here. Yeah, this idea of getting an assignment from the Holy Spirit. We read the New Testament, and we think, man, that's oddly specific. How did, how did they know this was such a specific thing for them? Or how did God speak to them in the moment? We should normalize that, because getting an assignment from the Holy Spirit is simply become, is just being a follower of Jesus Christ. God was calling Barnabas and Saul into a very specific work. And before they could do anything significant, they first had to be uh, separated to them. This is a a biblical concept that uh, to be separate to God means they were going to be separate from other things. Uh, Paul would later write, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for, say those next two words, good works which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The calling God had for the life of Paul had already been stated by Jesus himself. You remember the interaction he had uh, earlier in Acts? The Lord said to him, go. He was talking to Ananias. He was telling Ananias, there's a guy named Saul. Maybe you've heard of him. I need you to go to him. And Ananias said, say what? (laughs) So just to make sure, are there multiple Saul's? Because I know of the one. And this is what Jesus says to him. Lord said, Ananias, go. He's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake. 
So this was a serious call on Paul's life. Let's keep reading, verse 3. Then after fasting and prayer, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This represents a dependence on God. Fair prayer and fasting demonstrated that dependence. Um, it's beautiful to see that uh, Barnabas and Saul were supported by this local church in Antioch. They were supported and sent by a specific local church. And this is what we're seeing. The church started. We've seen for a few chapters now that the church has scattered. And now this is the sending. This is the separating of Paul and Barnabas to a very specific task to go outside of their normal comfort zone and to share the gospel to those who were previously outsiders. Now, this is awesome because they did all this without calling one committee together. <laughs> right? There was no study of the demographics. There was no marketing survey. There was no scout team. They simply went with the call and power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, let's keep reading. Verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. Everyone say Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. The Christians of the church at Antioch sent Barnabas and Saul, but Scripture is very clear. Who were they being sent out by? The Holy Spirit. They'd got their assignment from the Holy Spirit. There's a map here. It's on your outline as well that kind of shows uh, where Paul would go, Paul and Barnabas would go in this first missionary journey. Um, they might have gone here because it was the port city near Antioch. Um, we're not shown any recorded history of ministry there, but there most likely was ministry being done. We get to verse 5. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Now, the custom of the open synagogue was this. Uh, tradition invited learned men to speak to the people of the synagogue on the Sabbath. They would go there, and if you were learned, you were able to speak about the things of Scripture, the things of the Pentateuch, whatever they were reading, and it afforded them an opportunity to meet other believers. It afforded them an opportunity to, uh, to influence others, but this was the mode they went when they went to a new place. We see Mark is with them as well. We'll talk about Mark a little bit later. Let's keep reading in verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, and you can follow that in your map, they came upon a certain magician, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Everyone say Bar-Jesus. Bar verse 7, he was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So as you look at this map, uh, Paphos was a city on the west coast of Cyprus known for its immorality, right? We talked about it last week that certain cities um, were just known for things. Certain regions of the area were known for things. Paphos was known for its immorality. Barnabas and Saul faced a combination of immorality and darkness that was common across the pagan world. Uh, one of the historians I read said this, Paphos was infamous for its worship of Venus, the god of sexual love. They, they styled their religion on the deification of lust. Neither men nor women could resort to the shrine of Venus without being filled in mind and depraved in character, the historian said. So just to paint the picture of the kind of city they were ministering to. 
We read on in verse uh, 6, it says, When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came up a certain magician, a uh, false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was summoned, uh, he was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul. So Sergius Paulus was an important man. He was influential. He was a Roman proconsul responsible for an entire province, and he, has, he answered directly to the Roman Senate. So he's a man of some importance here. And so while they were ministering in Paphos, uh, word got out, and the proconsul, Sergius, wanted to hear the word of God, wanted to meet them. Verse 8, um, but Elmas, El, Elimas, the magician... This is Bar-Jesus, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Why does Luke use two different names here? His name is Bar-Jesus, but it's also uh, the meaning of Bar-Jesus in the language would be Elimas. I believe he didn't want to use the words Bar-Jesus because Bar-Jesus literally means son of Jesus. And I think Luke had a hard time writing that down. I think he had a hard time saying Bar-Jesus numerous times. So he identifies for him for us. Bar-Jesus uses his other common name, Elimas, just to paint the picture of who he is. But there's not a really good explanation of why he uses the two names. But most historians believe that he just didn't want to give him the benefit of the doubt by calling him a son of Jesus. We'll get back to that because Luke, uh, Luke's kind of a jokester and we'll see that a little bit later. As we think about him and we think about uh, what he wants to do, he opposed them, the Bible said. And his goal was to seek to turn Sergius, the proconsul, away from the faith. Again, if you're following notes, following Jesus guarantees there will be opposition or persecution in our lives as we yield ourselves to him. It's interesting because getting an assignment from God is part of being a follower of Jesus. So is facing opposition and persecution. And most of us will go our whole Christian life never hearing from God and getting an assignment and also never really facing any opposition or persecution because you're living your life kind of in a silo. You've put up so much walls in your life that no one sees your faith being lived out. And yet these two crucial areas that really are a mark of following Jesus, hearing from God, getting an assignment from God, and facing opposition or persecution in your lives, these are the two marks of Christianity, and yet most people will go through their life having never heard from God, getting an assignment, and never facing opposition or persecution because for a lot of people, their faith is like, a book on the shelf. And one day I'm a Christian and one day I'm not. One day I'm on a diet, one day I'm not. One day I'm vegan, one day I'm not. Right? One day I do this, one day I do this. On Sundays I grab this one because I am a Christian. Do you see what I'm saying? And if you go through life with that mentality where you silo parts of your life, including your faith, It's attractive to a lot of people because there's no opposition or persecution, right? It's an easy life. The tragedy is this. You likely never hear from God either. You never get an assignment. You never are actively working out your faith where God is speaking to you. And the opposition or persecution 
only serves as this amazing opportunity for God to move in your life. So following Jesus guarantees there will be this opposition or persecution in our lives. Paul was opposed by this man named Elymas, bar Jesus, right? Uh, let's look at what he says. Saul, who was also called Paul, we'll talk about that in a minute, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, say that next phrase with me, ready, begin. You son of the devil. Some of you are saying it like you've never said that phrase before. Um, what's, what was this guy's name? Bar-Jesus. What's Bar-Jesus mean? You see what Paul's doing here? He's saying, you're living a lie. You're not the son of Jesus. In fact, you're the son of the devil. You enemy of all unrighteousness. It's interesting because Saul is also called Paul. Um, I was looking into this, and, and, and Paul's, Saul's dad gave him this name, um, which is a Roman name, gave the child of a Roman and a Latin name because he was a Roman citizen with all the rights the Roman Empire implied. Most people believe that he was also called Saul growing up. Um, and so we see the transition now uh, with his Roman name, uh, which means little, sounds similar to Saul. Um, I think scripture does this for a few reasons. One, Paul is the Roman name. And Paul would be used to bring Gentiles to Jesus. Paul is also, uh, Paul's name, the word Paul means little. And if you remember Saul's life, if you read through Philippians chapter 2 and some portions of Galatians, he will give his resume as a Jew. He will tell you all of the ways that he is, by all accounts, um, perfect and uh, complete by the standard of the law. And I think one of the reasons why scriptures referenced him as Paul is a reminder that he's little. It's a reminder of his actual nature that in, even in the way that he would try to portray himself uh, before Jesus as a Pharisee and of the tribe of Judah and all of these things that would elevate his personal resume, at the end of the day, he's just one of us. He's little, he's Paul. So Paul gives us this play on words and he calls him this, you son of the devil, you enemy of all unrighteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Verse 11. And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Paul uses discernment here. He, uh, he's, he's using this gift of faith. He rebuked and pronounced the judgment of God. Verse 12, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. It's amazing the judgment that comes so immediately on someone who would prevent someone from hearing the gospel. 
from hearing it. The proconsul, the Bible says he genuinely wanted to hear from Paul and Barnabas. He wanted to hear the teaching. And Bar-Jesus, Elymas, he, he was the one that opposed it. He would create a roadblock. He would try to stop. And Paul, in, led by the Holy Spirit of God, pronounced judgment on him. And we should not be surprised or shaken by the opposition, but also recognize that God will take care of that judgment. Um, Spurgeon said it this way, a child cannot get his kite up without wind, nor without a wind which drives against the kite. Spurgeon's talking about this word picture that our faith for it to rise above the circumstances of this world, to rise above the difficulty, to rise above the frustration, the opposition and persecution we might face drives the kite into the wind. It's, the, it's what drives it up in the wind. And then similarly in our life, the opposition and persecution are moments and opportunities for us to yield and to trust the Holy Spirit. And before you know it, you don't get uh, those oppositions removed magically. The persecution doesn't disappear magically, but all of a sudden you find yourself on the other side of it because of Jesus. So the proconsul believed when he saw uh, the teaching. Um, just some interesting parallels about the proconsul and Saul himself. They both strongly opposed the word of God at a point in their life, right? They both were struck blind for a time. Both were said to be needing uh, to be led by the hand, and they both believed. Uh, that last verse is interesting because it shares why he believed. He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Like the blindness would have done it for me, right? If all of a sudden Paul called out judgment on someone and that person went blind, that would have done it for me. But I think it's awesome that Luke highlights that for the proconsul, he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. I think he saw the courage of both Paul and Barnabas. He saw their courage to teach, to lead despite these circumstances. Luke intends with Paul as with Peter previously to show how they follow closely in the footsteps of their Lord in their teaching and actions and lives and receive a similar response. Paul, before his Damascus Road experience, basically lived the life that Bar-Jesus was living now. And now he's living this life of redemption and restoration. I think the life of Paul beckons us to consider our own lives and our reliance on Jesus every day. I want to end with this thought. Every answer to prayer God provides will lead to more prayer requests. Every time God answers a prayer in your life, you know what you end up having to do? <laughs> you just have to pray again. And you have to pray more. I've never prayed a prayer in my life, and I don't think you have either, where you've prayed that prayer, God answers it, and you go, cool, done. That's good. Again, this is why our faith with God is described as this walk, because it's these it's these deliberate, intentional steps we take. And every time God answers a prayer in our life, it simply leads us to yield on him more, to trust him more. Um, let's just take Saul, for example, and then we'll make some applications in our own life. For the first half dozen chapters of the book of Acts, they've seen some amazing things, and we've talked about this before, right? Thousands of people are coming to Jesus 
They had this one issue with someone withholding some offerings. But other than that, the recorded history of the church is just amazing boom kind of growth. We're talking population explosion when it comes to following Jesus. Again, Luke used to keep exact details, and he would say 3,000 here, and 2,000 here, another 1,000 here, another 2,000. By Acts chapter 4 or 5 or something like that, he just stops counting. He just says a bunch more, a bunch more, a whole lot more. And throughout this whole time where the church was growing, there was persecution that started, which began to allow the church to begin to scatter. And a lot of the persecution was held by this guy named Saul. Now, if you're part of the early church and you're praying for your fellow believers and it's a brand new church and you're praying for them, um, what kind of prayer are you praying for Saul? Right? What kind of prayer are you praying for him? Because I can tell you the one I would pray. Lord, thank you for all the people that are coming to church. In your time, maybe today, would you please kill Saul? Would you eliminate him from our life? He is the source of all persecution. He is the source of everything against you, God. So, Lord, would you just eliminate him as a threat? Would you just remove him? Um, I remember reading an article about a a cancer patient survivor, and they had, uh, this gal had gone through cancer three or four times. And the first time she went through her treatment, she would pray, Lord, uh, I pray that you would take this away. And that's how I'd prayed. If I was facing something like that. We have some folks in our church that are going through some pretty serious diagnoses. And that's how I'm praying. I'm praying for healing. I'm praying that those sicknesses would just go away. The second time through, she went through her, it came, uh, they did surgery, they scanned, she was clean, they did the next six months scan, and it's there again. Second time through, she's praying the same thing, Lord, please take this away. Happened again for the third time. By the fourth time, she said she found herself praying this way, Lord, make this count. Boy, you see the shift there in that prayer? Not... Not our, we're not asking for the way out anymore, but she started asking for it to count now in a different way. She began journaling about it, began blogging about it, and began seeing how many people she could just live out the gospel with through all of her treatments, through all of her surgeries. And she started just chronicling the nurses and the doctors and the people that came to Jesus because of how she lived her life and the opportunities she had to share. I believe the early church were praying for Saul to get eliminated, and you knew how God answered the prayer? Yeah, I know you want him out. What if he was part of this thing? What if all of a sudden he met his maker? What if all of a sudden he experienced redemption and restoration? And so God took their prayer, I believe, because I know how I would pray. I think they pray that they would, he would just be eliminated. And then now he is redeemed and he's restored and now they can stop praying for Saul, right? If you read those verses, man, that we talked about in Acts chapter 8, 9, and 10, it was really hard for the other followers of Jesus to accept Saul. 
It's really hard for them to understand. So yeah, God answers this huge, awesome prayer. Saul's now a part of the kingdom. He's a believer. And now they're like, I don't know if we want him anymore. (laughs) This is weird, Lord. He killed my family. He was like, he, he consented to Stephen's death. We were there. We saw him standing there approving. It would have been way easier if you just eliminated him. So now they have to start praying for them. Barnabas comes on the scene, and Barnabas, man, Barnabas just wraps his arm around Saul and, and welcomes him in when no one else would. Saul goes away for a while, and the church is probably like, thank goodness. And all of a sudden, he comes back years later. And they're like, again? And they had to pray again. And now, the Spirit is leading Paul and Barnabas to go out. And now, I just can you just picture the early church? Now they're putting their hands on Saul. Make no mistake, they wanted to put their hands on him a long time ago. But but now they're praying over him and they're commissioning him and they're sending him out. Every time God answers a prayer in your life, it'll just make you come to this place where you have to pray again. You know what happens after you experience a mountaintop experience in your life? There's a valley, right? So when we say the God of the mountain is the God of the valley. What we're saying is, I have to live dependent on God through every stage of life, right? So this is why you cannot be a follower of Jesus if all it is is 10.30 to noon on Sundays or 10.30 to 12.15 if I get a little <laughs> something, something. You just can't do it. It's impossible because this is what's going to happen. You're going to come 10.30, You're either going to be super encouraged because the service was encouraging or you're going to be super burdened because you've carried this whole week of burdens. So I can, uh, yeah, I'll say it. uh, Sometimes on Sundays I can just feel people and they're coming in with their burdens and they're coming in with the week. They're coming in with the weight of the week and you come Sunday and Sunday will help. I'm not minimizing Sunday. But what if Monday morning turned into a worship service for you? And what if Monday morning, uh, I was talking with some guys this week, it sounds so trite to begin your day with God. Um, but if you, just, if you just calibrated your days a little differently and you began with some worship every morning, find you a playlist, find you a YouTube video, find you the music that you like, the worship that you like. Good news, you get to pick the songs. Find the music you like. Give yourself 10 minutes of just worship, first thing in the morning. And come to a place of prayer and say, Lord, here's what I got going on today. This is how I start every one of my prayers in the morning. I'll say, well, first thing in the morning, I have this appointment. I don't know why I'm meeting with this person. So Lord, give me some wisdom. Give me some discernment. I'm going to have staff meeting after that. And there's some things we got to discuss. And Christmas is coming and all of this. So we're going to need wisdom. 
Uh, not all my ideas are going to be great. Lord, give the staff courage to tell me no. He always does, by the way. <laughs> After that, I'm going to have lunch with a friend. Uh, Lord, uh, let me be a blessing to them. I just I want to encourage them. They're going through this or this in their life. I got like three hours in the afternoon. I'm going to study. I'm going to try to study then. But Lord, if there's an interruption, um, I know how I can get. So don't let me get frustrated. And then we're going to have dinner with Libby tonight. Help me to be present for Libby. Help me to be there with her in that moment. Okay, Lord, that's my day. All of a sudden, the focus of your day has shifted, right? And every time God answers a prayer, it leads you to more prayer. Um, let's just carry this out for a second. We've all prayed for a new job, and then you get the job. And all of a sudden, you have to work with people, <laughs> like other people. Like, because God answered their prayer too, right? Now you have to work with people maybe you don't get along or you don't know. And that should lead you to more prayer. And then all of a sudden, there's an opportunity to get a raise. There's an opportunity to get a promotion. And so you pray for that. And now you got the promotion. And now you got different people you have to be accountable to. There's different pressures on your job. There's different success metrics. There's uh, different leadership now, Right? Like every time you get an answer to prayer, it should lead you back to the throne. I want to encourage you as we, we're going to see some wild things in the life of Paul. The book of Acts is shifting now. We're not going to hear about Peter anymore. We're not going to hear about the church um, in, in the respects that we have for the last dozen chapters. The movement of the book of Acts now centers on Paul going to all of these different places preaching the gospel and what he and the church experiences in all of these moments. And what it can look like is a highlight reel of God working. And it is. It's an amazing journey. By the time we get to the end of the book of Acts, you're going to be like, oh my goodness, Lord, do it again. What we saw in the book of Acts, do it again. But I want to remind you, in between every one of these highlights and every between of all of these mountaintop experiences is opportunities to go through valleys. And most of life is going through valleys and handling the ups and downs of life. I want to encourage you to make your faith this daily, daily, daily walk. It's not a weekly walk. Um, it's this daily, daily walk that we get to yield ourselves to Jesus. Um, he has an assignment for you. I'm going to pray that you're listening. And in your assignment, there will be opposition and persecution. And it's a reminder to us that every time we come before God is an opportunity to continually yield ourselves to him. Let me pray for you this morning. God, I pray that as followers of Jesus Christ, we would be uniquely aware that there are assignments for us. And more times than not, the assignments in our life are actually relationships in our life. The assignments you have in our life are relationships you either want us to start or to cultivate or to strengthen or to deepen. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, that as we look at Paul and Barnabas and the awesome things they go through, we wouldn't just look at it as, oh, that's really amazing how God spoke to them, but it would be an encouragement to us that we would say, Lord, speak to us. What is my assignment? Who is my assignment today? 
Father, as we begin to hear from you, I am convinced also that there will be persecution and opposition in our lives. There will be difficulty that comes because we're living out our faith. And I pray that difficulty would not represent opportunities of retreat for us in the sense that we retreat from our calling or we retreat from our assignment, but that those moments would actually represent moments of surrender where we simply yield ourselves to your Holy Spirit's care, presence, and power in our life. And through those different moments, mountaintops and valleys, we would continually just depend on the Holy Spirit, that we would yield ourselves to you daily. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.